going down. Level three. Title 42, the pandemic-era law that authorized the quick expulsion of migrants, has expired. Me tocó salir de mi país, eh, obligada prácticamente, entonces sé que por acá voy a estar segura. In its place, the U.S. government is implementing a series of enforcement policies that are intended to reduce the number of people reaching the U.S.-Mexico border, but while also creating opportunities for asylum seekers to get protection within the country. But the transition to the new policies are expected to create serious challenges as border communities, the federal agencies, and the non-governmental organizations that cater to the migrant population adapt to the changes that went into effect starting May 12th. What's next for migrants seeking shelter in the U.S.? And how will Congress handle this political hot potato moving forward? Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and ACCentral.com. Each week, we explore the political issues that affect our state, our community, and you. I'm Mary Jo Pitzel. I cover state politics for the Arizona Republic. And I'm Ron Hansen, national politics reporter for the Republic. Today, we're joined by two of our reporters, Rafael Carranza, who covers immigration issues, and Daniel Gonzalez, who covers race, justice, and opportunity. Welcome to you both. There were predictions in some quarters of an impending humanitarian disaster when Title 42 expired. Mercifully, that appears to have not happened. A lot of what we've heard from various officials made it sound like this wasn't as bad as what a lot of people had been predicting. You both were in different areas. Let's talk about what you saw. Daniel, we'll start with you. You were at Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. Tell us what you were doing and what you saw. Sure. What I did is I accompanied some asylum seekers who were released by Homeland Security at a church in Mesa. And I followed them from the church where they're released. And what happens typically is this bus will pull up in the morning every week. They drop off the migrants. The volunteers there provide them with hot food, some guidance, clothing, and then they make their arrangements to continue their travel. And it's, it's important to note here that the vast majority of asylum seekers that are released in Arizona are actually traveling to other states. They're not staying here. And the reason is, is our immigrant and our asylum population is mostly Mexican and, and some Guatemalans, but the vast majority of asylum seekers are coming from Central America and from South America, and they're headed to states that have much larger populations of people from those countries. So it's really just a pass-through state. And then what happens is they are dropped off at these different shelters in Arizona, and then they are driven by volunteers to the airport, and then they board flights to continue their trip. So I followed some a family, for example, from Colombia. It was a woman and her four-year-old daughter, and they had left in early May and made uh, flown into Mexico and then went to the border. And then... Um, the pastor of the church drove them to Sky Harbor. They got off there, and with the papers that were given by Homeland Security, they were able to pick up their boarding passes and then pass through 
TSA security checkpoints. I went to the airport to see if there was going to be a chaotic situation there with an incre- potential increase of asylum seekers being dropped off here and then all showing up you know, at the airport at the same time. And what became really clear is that Sky Harbor is a very large airport that's built to accommodate very large numbers of travelers. So really, even though there had been an influx on Thursday when we were there, it was a drop in the bucket. And this is a slow travel season. And there were actually no lines that the people that I followed had no trouble getting through. We also were there when a bus showed up from Yuma. There were, I think, 15 buses that came with migrants from the Yuma shelter on Thursday. And we watched them get off the bus. We chatted with a woman named Jimena who was from... Um, Guerrero, Mexico. I feel more safe than in my own country because right now there is no security in my country. That's the reason why we came here, for a better life. You know, they were kind of looked a little bit confused and kind of found their way, but they, the scene was very, very, very orderly and very smooth. Now, there's a chance that we're going to see in the days to come greater influx of people, and that's going to challenge some of these um, shelters and potentially more strain in the airport. But so far, we haven't seen any of that. Rafa, you were in Tijuana. Tell us what that scene was like. Was it overwhelming? Was it manageable and orderly? How did that look and feel? Well, the reason we wanted to go to Tijuana is because it's the largest border city on the Mexican side, but it also has the largest number of migrants waiting to claim asylum in the U.S. And so because there's such a large number, we wanted to be there when Title 42 expired to witness what that was going to be like. We know that a lot of the attention currently is centered on what's happening in Ciudad Juarez and El Paso, Texas. That's where a lot of the activity we had seen leading up to the May 11th expiration of Title 42 was kind of focused on. But Tijuana is a very interesting case because that tends to be a city where a lot of immigration policies kind of and the tensions over these immigration policies boil over. So when we were there, there's a very robust network of shelters. There's over 30 of them alone. And so, you know, we wanted to talk to the migrants that were there and see what they were thinking. And, um, you know, we didn't see anything that we had seen in the past where, you know, we had in previous times that I had been down there, there had been groups of migrants that had attempted to rush the border. We did see uh, this time around is that there were groups of people that had crossed into the U.S. and they set up this makeshift camp on the American side. And that was a little unusual because generally you have people waiting. They stay on the Mexican side. But this time we saw them on the San Diego side, you know, setting up these tents with whatever they could. Uh, sitting on the ground, uh, no access to food, uh, just one, you know, porta potty for about 500 people in this camp. And this is on the American side. So you had a lot of volunteers assisting there. But for the most part, you know, we did not see a lot of activity per se outside of the the ordinary. And a lot of the people that we talked to also, they told us that really nothing for them had changed after Title 42 expired. You know, some of them had been waiting there for about two years or more. And so the fact, you know, there were some new policies in place didn't necessarily change the fact that they were going to have to continue waiting for even longer, especially now that after Title 42 expired, the one way that the U.S. government says people can claim asylum legally in the U.S. if they're at the border is making an appointment through this phone app, the CBP-1 app. And there's only a limited number of slots. So, you know, people uh, try to get some of those appointments early in the morning. 
but because they're very limited, there's only a small handful of people who will be able to secure those. Everybody else has to continue trying and trying and trying. And that's kind of the reality that many of them will have to face, you know, for the next few weeks until they're able to secure those appointments. Daniel, as Rafa mentioned, things were fairly manageable in Tijuana, partially because of who's affected by Title 42. So can you clarify for our listeners which countries are affected by this? Which ones aren't? Well, Title 42 was put in place in March 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was really it was intended to prevent asylum seekers from coming to the United States during the pandemic and potentially, you know, spreading the virus, especially in some of the closed quarters at the Border Patrol processing facilities. But prior to the pandemic, we were seeing very large numbers of asylum seekers coming from Mexico and Central America. And that's mostly what Title 42 has been applied to. If you look at the statistics of how many people have been expelled under Title 42, you would see that the vast majority of them are asylum seekers from Mexico and Central America. And it's the Northern Triangle countries of Central America, El Salvador, Honduras, and Guatemala. And then more recently, the Biden administration expanded Title 42 to apply to Haitians, Venezuelans, and Cubans, which we were also seeing large numbers. Even though Title 42 was in place, a lot of asylum seekers were still coming into the United States. Um, it wasn't being applied to them. It wasn't being applied to asylum seekers from South America for the most part and from other countries which were like, you know, Russia. Um, we were seeing this asylum seekers from Georgia, some countries in Africa. So it wasn't like when Title 42 ended, it was like it wasn't going to be a situation where we had no asylum seekers crossing the border and then all of a sudden a big influx. What it really meant was asylum seekers were already coming across the border and there was a potential to see an even greater number when Title 42 ended. So Rafa, can you explain to us how many of those people who are coming across the border and seeking asylum how many of them are seeking asylum rather than the standard immigration? And then talk a little bit about this government's app for processing asylum claims. Every person who reaches the U.S.-Mexico border has an opportunity to claim asylum, or at least that's how it used to be. And the U.S. law says that, you know, regardless of how you reach the U.S.-Mexico border, you should have an opportunity to claim asylum. But in practice, that's not really how it's played out. Um, and so... Uh, a lot of the individuals, when Title 42 was in place, they could be summarily expelled back to Mexico, even if they had an asylum claim. But because, you know, this policy was applied to them, there was just no way for them to make those claims other than, you know, if they made an appointment through this phone application that, again, is just a very limited uh, number of slots. But starting May 12th, you know, after Title 42 went away, you now have some significant changes to the way that asylum or eligibility is determined. There's a final rule that the Departments of Homeland Security and the Departments of Justice issued that went into effect on Friday that essentially makes any migrant ineligible to claim asylum in the United States if they did not do a number of things. Uh, the first thing is if they did not apply for one of the legal pathways, as the government calls them, this means that if, you know, there's a humanitarian parole program, for example, that targets migrants from Venezuela, from Cuba, from Haiti, and uh, from Nicaragua, if you don't apply for those programs, then, uh, you know, you're considered ineligible. If you attempt to cross the border without authorization, uh, without having made an appointment, 
through the CBP-1 app, you're considered ineligible. And I think the most significant portion of this ban as well is that if you did not apply for asylum at a country that you traveled to on the way to the United States, then you are also not considered eligible for asylum. And as a result of that, there's a lot of concern from a lot of advocacy groups that that essentially makes the vast majority of people ineligible, whereas U.S. law says that you should be able to claim asylum regardless of how you get there. And the consequences, I think, are the most significant part of this change as well, because under Title 42, people could be sent back, but there were no consequences for that. So people could try to reach the U.S. border time and time again. That's something that we saw significantly where the recidivism rate, the attempts that people made were you know, very high. But now that Title 42 goes away, some of these harsher penalties are going to be in place. So if someone is deemed to be ineligible for asylum, but they try to cross the border anyway, they will be deported and under an expedited removal process. And this can happen in just a matter of days or weeks. So there's concerns about due process, whether people will be able to present their claims fully under that expedited process. But also if they're deported, it carries a five-year ban from entering the country. And if they try that again, they can be prosecuted and, and, and you know face jail time. So it's a very significant change from kind of what we saw before Title 42 went away. And then as for that app, I've heard some accounts over the weekend that people couldn't get in. What's your sense? Is it working? Is it just crashing for demand? That's something that, you know, we've seen because um, the application was rolled out in January. So it's not a new system. It's been in place now for a few months. And ever since then, we've heard repeatedly about a number of issues uh, one of them, I think, is accessibility. The fact that it's only in three languages when you have migrants from all over the world and in many indigenous languages who may not be fully fluent in the English, Spanish, or Creole, which are the three languages that this app is in. But also, there's a lot of questions about you know how you're able to access this app when you don't have a lot of the basic necessities and you know you're required to have internet connection and a strong internet connection at that in order to make an appointment. And, you know, once you are able to make that appointment, you then have to confirm that appointment. And even though the U.S. government has expanded the time window, when someone secures an appointment, they have 24 hours to confirm it. But that still kind of creates, you know, there's still some of those technological barriers. A lot of migrants also don't have very good cell phones to be able to do that. And so there's definitely a lot of concern that this is creating a very inequitable system where only the people who have the means to be able to secure internet connection and a good cell phone will be able to get those appointments to claim asylum, whereas everybody else and, you know, tends to be the people who may need it the most, may be kind of frozen out or shut out of that system. Both of you have mentioned that thus far there hasn't been a huge rush at the border like some pundits feared. Santa Cruz County Sheriff David Hathaway has stood apart from most other Arizona politicians uh, suggesting the end of Title 42 won't result in a flood of migrants. He's on the front lines being a border sheriff. What is he seeing that others don't? And is there an expectation that as time goes on, things will get busier? You know, I, I listened into a couple of calls from the U.S. government officials talking about, you know, the preparations, and they've also been having a couple of calls after the fact. And they point to the fact that they kind of expected there to be an increase because historically that's kind of what we've seen whenever there's been big policy changes. What we've seen instead is that the number of apprehensions that they've been seeing at the border have decreased after Title 42 expired. 
but there's no guarantee that that will kind of remain the case. I think that something that we've seen also historically whenever there's been changes in the past is that it usually takes some time for us to kind of see the patterns or to see more of kind of how the numbers will play out. The fact that I think, for example, in Santa Cruz County, because there's such a robust network of shelters and assistance there, I think that there's kind of more of that aid and, you know, because you you have a lot more communication, direct communication with the migrants and able to address their needs. On top of that, I think we also have to mention the fact that the U.S. has also been pressuring a lot of the regional governments to take an increased approach to kind of tackle it as a kind of like a hemisphere solution. So they pointed out, you know, for example, to the fact that uh, Mexico and Guatemala have also been deploying large numbers of military and law enforcement to also do a lot of interdiction, essentially, and stopping migrants from reaching the U.S.-Mexico border. That has been going on for some time, and I think that that also explains why we haven't seen a large number of migrants reaching the border. But now the the strategy is kind of farther down into Latin America, where the U.S. has also recruited countries like Panama and Colombia to step up their efforts as well and to do more to either take in people for asylum in those countries or do more of uh, an enforcement actions to stop the flow of people trying to reach the U.S. Yeah, and I think also you have to keep in mind that Title 42 was supposed to end two other times before, last December and then a year ago. So that's given the Biden administration a lot of time to kind of think about how they're going to address this. And we're also getting um, near the 2024 presidential race. So there's a lot to lose in the Biden administration if, if the border were to turn into a huge crisis right now. And so I think you're seeing two things. One, you're seeing migrants who potentially could qualify for asylum taking a wait and see approach to see how these new measures are going to play out, how they're going to be applied. And also you see the Biden administration announcing some very harsh policies that could result in migrant asylum seekers losing out on the chance to get asylum. So I think that message is people are are hearing that along the border, not just asylum seekers, but remember there are over time, a lot of criminal organizations have gotten involved with the whole kind of asylum business. And they're, they're taking a wait and see approach to see how tough these new policies are going to be applied. So I think, you know, that's what, that's what we're seeing is that this is something that's been building for a while and there's been some pretty tough deterrence put into place and to see if that's going to hold. You've talked a lot about the governmental response on all of this. This certainly also has fallout for the non-governmental organizations that are working to try and help manage the migrant populations and others from other countries and other various charitable areas as well. What has been the biggest challenge that those NGOs have seen and are experiencing right now? And and what is the near-term expectation in terms of their ability to manage the, the flow of people coming through the system? Well, I mean, I think it's important to note that this is nothing new. I mean, these organizations have been involved with this work for years, really going back in 2014, when we saw the big first kind of precursor to this with the surges of unaccompanied minors. And you saw the NGOs were trying to respond to those first unaccompanied minors. And then after that, families. Most of the people that you see coming at the border are families. These are people that have a very big distinction to the migrants of the past that were trying to evade the border patrol 
get into the United States illegally. We still have people who try to sneak into the country illegally who are mostly coming here for work. They know they don't have any chance at, at applying for asylum. But the new phenomenon that we have here is people are, arrive at the border often with children and instead of trying to evade the border patrol, they cross and they simply stand there until the border patrol picks them up. And then when they're released to the United States, we've created this over these years, beginning in 2014, the NGOs have created this system to accommodate them when they're released in Arizona. They provide them typically with food, clothing, overnight shelter if needed, uh, and transportation to the bus station or to the airport. So we've seen big surges in the past, and I think these NGOs have accommodated big surges in the past over the, we really, they're, they're really kind of been into a lot, much more of a lull until recently. So they're capable of handling a lot of people. The question is going to be is if we see another really big influx that's prolonged over a long period of time, that could really put some strains on these organizations. The other thing to note is that these releases would take place directly at the bus station and sometimes at the airport, and it created a horrible humanitarian crisis in the interior of Arizona away from the border. But we've We've seen these NGOs, especially the International Rescue Committee, some groups in uh, Yuma, and also the Catholic Charities and Catholic Diocese in Tucson create pretty large shelters that function pretty well. The head of the International Rescue Committee, who's the former Foreign Secretary of Great Britain, David Miliband, made a special trip to Arizona last week to kind of see how things were working here. And he was very impressed by what he called the Arizona model. And he credits this model, this coordination is taking place between the shelters with really preventing some of the large-scale street releases and chaos that we've seen in other states. If I can add something to that, too, I also think it comes down to money. The work that these nonprofit organizations are doing, they claim, is something that the federal government should you know, be responsible for because it is a federal issue. And I think what we've seen over the course of the past few years is that the U.S. government has kind of recognized that. And so... Because of that, kind of led by the congressional delegation here in Arizona, Congress has funded a lot more of, you know, their efforts. And so, for example, in this past budget, they passed approximately $350 million that, you know, will go towards these nonprofits and no longer just in the border, but because you have a lot of these migrants that are ending up in places like New York and Washington, they're also eligible for a lot of this money as well. But I think that it's important to be able to to have this be a sustainable effort, there needs to be buy-in from the federal government in, this, in the form of funding. And as of now, you know, there's still a lot of challenges in the way that they can get some of that money, primarily because it tends to be a reimbursement model where the nonprofits have to front the cost first and then ask for reimbursement from the government later. And what we've seen, you know, even now is that there are some expenses that the federal government will not pay for. And so the nonprofits have to eat those costs. And they say that model is, is not necessarily sustainable because there's only so much that they're able to do. And yes, they're able to get support from the community. But again, it comes back to, you know, their belief that, you know, this should be a federal issue that the federal government should address first. So given some of the measures that have been taken, you know, for what, almost a decade now to deal with this, from your talks with people who run some of these nonprofits, do they think that the incoming migrant population, that they can keep up with what will be coming to America and to Arizona specifically? Do they think things will get better 
or worse over the coming weeks? And I'm also curious about the effect of the summer heat hitting. You know, that's always a challenge because, you know, this is a time when we historically see a higher number of deaths or at least kind of recoveries. And I think that one of the key things to note here is the fact that you have these policies that, you know, do kind of carry more consequences. And as Daniel mentioned, many of them are kind of in a wait and see mode. And I think that over the course of the next few weeks, we'll have to wait and see whether they feel that, you know, what they're going through out of either desperation or, you know, economic opportunity, whatnot, if they feel that that outweighs the penalties that have been enforced, then we could potentially see, you know, more people attempting to cross. And of course, you also have to keep in mind that it's now become a a business, a billion dollar business that the cartels are very much involved in and smuggling networks that look for opportunities to make as much money as they can. And so these smuggling groups are also keeping a very close eye and, and seeing how they can adapt to these changes. And that could potentially create opportunities for them to seize on people's desperation and try to make these attempts that can be pretty deadly. So one other thing I'll note is that something that kind of has become routine with immigration and border policy is the involvement of the U.S. court system. Anytime there's any significant policy in place, it's almost kind of like a it's uh, guaranteed that there's going to be a legal challenge, whether it's from the left or the right, but there will always be a legal challenge. We've already seen that with the asylum bar that went into place on May 12th. You have uh, migrant rights groups that have sued because, you know, they believe that access to asylum should be a lot more open based on, you know, what U.S. law says. And so, you know, that's still playing out. It's in the initial stages, but at any moment we could get a decision from the courts that may limit that opportunity. We've already had some involvement from the court in terms of limiting the administration's ability to release migrants on parole into the interior. So that's something else I think we'll have to keep a close eye on as well, because that could have significant impacts, not just in the ability of the government to implement these policies, but consequently on the ground, um, you know, the, uh, that'll have impact on the calculus that migrants will make as to whether it's worth attempting to cross without authorization or to wait out and try to do it through the app or some of these other legal pathways. Well, I think if we do see a sustained surge, that's definitely going to put a strain on the local NGOs. There was already some churches that I talked to last week that said they can't handle more people. They've been, they can take a certain amount of people that they already were receiving prior to Title 42 ending. If we see a big surge in the days or weeks to come, they won't be able to accommodate more people. So that will either mean that will fall to the NGOs, the churches that are already accepting people, or they'll have to be an additional NGOs will have to step forward to, to help out. Well, thank you both for chatting with us today. If people want to follow your work, where can they find you on social media? Well, they can find me at azdangonzalez on Twitter. And they can find me at at R-A-F-A-E-L-C-A-R-R-A-N-Z-A. That's all we have time for today, Gaggle listeners. You can keep up with Title 42 coverage by subscribing to the Arizona Republic or azcentral.com. Do you have questions you want us to answer or topics you'd like us to cover? Reach out to us at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word all spelled out. Or call us at 602-444-0804. If you like the show, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. To ensure you never miss an episode, follow The Gaggle on your favorite podcast app. 
You can follow me on Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N. And I'm at Mary J. Pitzel. That's P-I-T-Z-L. Today's episode was edited and produced by Kaylee Monahan. You can follow her at Kaylee Monahan. That's K-A-E-L-Y-M-O-N-A-H-A-N. And thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week. Bye.